Micah chapter 7. We don't have to stretch our imaginations uh, this morning to get a hold of the theme for the opening part of Micah chapter 7, Living for God in a Godless Age. That could probably be the title of many of your biographies if you wanted to write them, uh, write a book out. You know if you live for Christ, the, there's a burden of sorrow that is never too far away from the joy of knowing Christ as Savior and Redeemer. This part of Micah's prophecy is uh, probably more personal than what we've seen previously in Micah. He's been just setting forth God's word as it's been given to him, but he seems to speak a little more personally here, more emotionally. You really see a prophet's heart uh, in these early verses. You understand his feeling as he looks about him, at his people, at, at the culture that surrounds him. All that could be and should be, but isn't injustice and idolatry and wicked sensuality. It makes him feel very, very alone. And that's why the chapter begins, Woe is me. It's a declaration of utter sadness. A deep sadness marked the prophet Micah. So right away we learn it's, it's okay to feel sad sometimes. Most people feel sad when they don't get something they want. Something goes wrong in their life. But Micah is sad that God isn't getting what he wants. Which is a unique perspective. It is a God-centered look at the world. And it's the correct way to see life from God's point of view. All of us should strive to develop an understanding, an emotional as well as intellectual understanding, of things from God's viewpoint. That's how we should engage culture. That's how we should, those are the eyes we should see with, the eyes that Jesus had when he was on the earth. That, by the way, is why we have a Bible in the first place. Uh, it's an infallible source to develop a worldview, to, to have the eyes of God as you look upon the world around you. I think if we call someone godly, that's really what we mean, isn't it? When we say that this is a godly person, someone who has come a long way in shaping their own mind and heart to see things God's way. A person that is not godly is a person that sees things from a worldly point of view, from their own heart, from their own deceived nature. So Micah looks at his people and their wickedness and their foolish religious notions, their unbelief, and he grieves. And I want you to remember the context here. In chapter 6, verse 8, Micah declared in very precise very uncomplicated terms what exactly it is that God wants. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So the problem is, as he develops right after that in verses 9 through 16 of chapter 6, he's describing a nation that completely rejects those ideas. Judah had become a nation of corruption from top to bottom. Dishonest business practices, lying, violence, idolatry. So justice, kindness, humbly walking with God, those were 
foreign concepts to people's lives and hearts. Just wasn't to be found. Justice was out of the picture. Kindness and mercy always gave way to profit and power and religion was external and when it was internal it was superstitious in the extreme and foolish. So the sad conclusion rendered by God himself finishes chapter 6. He says, Therefore I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision and you will bear the reproach of my people. And it is contemplating God's pronouncement of judgment completely and thoroughly just, by the way, that makes Micah cry out in chapter 7, verse 1, Woe is me. Because he loves his people as wicked as they are. And it grieves him. His grief is strong. And a, a picture comes to his mind. So much of the Old Testament is painted with lovely sort of images. This one is less than lovely, but it's it, very apt. He, he has in his mind an, an image of field workers going out into the field, gathering the harvest. Or, or maybe it's an image of gleaners. You know what a gleaning person does? In the Old Testament, after the people went through that picked the crops, if it was in a vineyard, they picked the grapes. If it was in a fruit, they picked all the fruit off the tree or whatever. Uh, you know, my wife grew up in the orange grove countries. And you can have all the greatest pickers in the world go through a, 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 a grove of, of fruit trees, but there's always some left. They, 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 there's never 100% gathering. And gleaners were poor people that would go back through, and this was a law in the Old Testament that this had to be permitted, that if you owned a vineyard or a field or whatever, you had to allow the poor, after the harvesting had been done, to go through and glean everything that was left. And they could have it. In fact, the outsides of the fields that bordered roadways were to be left completely unharvested. So the travelers could go by and pick and take off whatever they needed uh, for their own sustenance. It was just the way they, they did it under the law of Moses. That was God's will. But Micah pictures these eager harvesters going into the vineyard, maybe these gleaners looking for that little bit left there for their, for their own survival, and nothing's left. There's nothing there. Nothing. The sustenance they needed, that they were counting on, isn't there. And he wants you to picture the, the anticipation and the excitement and how they waited for the day and they watched the, the field workers pass on through and then the gleaners come and they go out there and they've got their baskets and they've got their things together and there's nothing. They go from plant to plant, from vineyard to vineyard, from vine to vine and there's nothing. And he wants you to imagine how they feel. How would they feel? Verse 1 like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers, there is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. That feeling that they have is a little bit like the way it feels to live for God in a godless age. Micah is searching for brothers or sisters who are like-minded. Someone to encourage and be encouraged by someone who loves God, someone who desires to follow God faithfully, and he can't find anyone. He craves that fellowship, and it's not there. You know how that is? I know some of you know how wonderful it is to have that one Christian friend at work, or you're in a class, and the faith is getting pounded every day, and then one other person stands up and says something 
raises their hand and says something on behalf of the Lord and is courageous and you just go, wow, there's one more in here. You know that feeling? It's like finding gold. It is. So it's like the sun bursting through the clouds after a long, grim period of gray sky. It's just a wonderful feeling. Sometimes, though, in life, we're denied even that. And Micah is exactly in that place. He is alone. He feels alone. But you know, as bad as things have become in modern America, it isn't like it was for him. I mean, you can turn around and meet somebody that feels the same way you do in this room today. Verse 2, The godly person has perished from the land, and there was no upright person among men. I can imagine how Micah feels, and it makes you so thankful for brothers and sisters who have the same heart that you have. Not so we can be a little quick and do our own little thing and put everybody else down, but so life will be more than sorrow and not so lonely, and there will be a greater sense of hope. We live in such a strange time ourselves. The whole culture rejects God. They say, well, I mean, they don't say that. They don't say we reject God. They will accept a feel-good deity, right? And we can all use God words, and everybody will be okay with that, the God of their own imagination. But the God of Scripture, bring him up, he's got to go. He's, he's got to go. You find yourself alone at a party real fast if you bring him up. He's narrow. He's exclusive. He's wrathful. He's holy. He's the worst word of all, patriarchal. The great sin. He calls himself father. That has to go. But you know, we could handle a godless culture. In some ways, Christianity actually works best in a godless culture because it's clearer what the lines are and you have to choose more clearly if we're willing to lose things in order to be light in the darkness it works better but what's strange is modern Christianity itself sort of chasing off in all kinds of directions and prosperity doctrines and health and wealth gospels and psychologizing sin and just unholy living and, and marketing strategies man you know when you're a pastor you get all kinds of weird stuff in the mail all the time and Everybody trying to get you to get into their, how, how to market God to human beings. It's twisted. I mean, it's twisted. It really is. And, but it's common. Big seminars. How to make your church user-friendly. It's like a, your church is a computer. It's hard to see all that silliness because it's just not what it's about. And yet, it is not as bad as Micah's day. There are many people who still love the Lord. There, 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 there's a few clusters of grapes over here. And look on this vine over here. There's a few over here too. And, and I see some figs back there on that tree. See, it's good. It's not like it was for him. So I think we have it better than Micah. We have each other. And, and many Christians we can communicate with all over the country and around the world. There are even people of integrity in government and business. Yes, there are. <laughs> but Micah didn't see any. Verse 2, he says, All of them lie in wait for bloodshed, and each of them hunts the other with a net. They used to hunt with nets in those days. And he says, that's what people do with each other. They're, they're like, not literally, but the motives, their actions, the, the deeds of people. We're all centered on a, a competitive race to power and wealth at any price, and moral considerations were just cast aside rampantly. 
And the wickedness is unrestrained because the political leadership was corrupt. If you look at verse 3, he says, Concerning evil, both hands do it well. That's how thorough it was. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. Rulers and judges seek bribes, he says. So justice is for sale. And when judges are corrupt... The situation is pretty hopeless looking for justice. You can probably think about this in terms of some little countries around the world, maybe uh, south of here, places where drug money and political rebellion destabilize governments that have spent centuries defending the status quo and the very rich and the landowners, and uh, it's just turmoil. Rich men have giant private armies that go out and kill at their beck and call. They own vast tracts of land. They pretty much do whatever they want. That's the kind of world Michael lived in. Reformists end up assassinated and even judges so that those that are left, if, even if they want to be honest, are too timid. And since there's no justice anyway, the timid usually end up deciding they may as well get what they can, so they take bribes and pervert justice, and it's just hard to change that once it's entrenched. Micah goes on in verse 4, that the best of them, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. We've got a Joshua tree at our house, and it's vicious. I mean, it's vicious. And it's sort of sitting over our septic tank, and, and it's growing. The, the one that's on the septic side is, is really getting big and burly, and this, these branches, you know, a Joshua tree. You ever been raked by a Joshua tree? It's sticking down now, and it sticks down kind of where I park. So I get out of my car and I go, <coughs> I mean, I get these crown of thorns, like, every, I, I'm not parking there anymore, but it's, you don't think about it, and you get out, because it didn't used to be, like, at my head level. And now I just get jammed in the head. So if you ever see me with like, it's not the stigmata or anything growing out of my head. You know, St. Francis used to get the little marks of Christ on his hands, you know. I get him the crown of thorns regularly on my head now. But it's not a pleasant thing. And, and he's saying the best and the brightest are like briars and thorns. They, they pierce and they draw blood. They tear the flesh. So to say the best are thorns and briars is a pretty sad commentary on a society. And here's the point Micah makes over and over. He says, there will be a day of reckoning. It, it doesn't seem like it now, he says, but it's coming. He's already said earlier in the prophecy that it would come by way of invasion. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 10, he, he even identifies the invader well in advance. It's going to be Babylon. Even though Assyria was the big pusher in the time of his life, by the time this prophecy was fulfilled, it was Babylon. He knows it's Babylon because God told him and he tells it in advance. That day of reckoning he discusses in the second half of verse 4. He says, the day when you post a watchman, when there's signs of trouble and a watchman is posted because of, there's rumors or indications of foreign armies coming, he says, your punishment will come and their confusion will, will occur. Then confusion will occur. They're going to be taken. The wicked have this uncanny ability to drive the reckoning day out of their minds. That is how religious people in the Bible can be tagged as unbelievers because they're religious in some way, but they take the reality and they just shove it out of their mind. So the Bible's not impressed with religion. And it doesn't matter what religious activities people do or, or what they say, but what matters is, is their heart regarding the God who is there or are they worshiping idols of their own making or imagining. So religion as a substitute for truth or a cloak for wickedness doesn't impress God. He's not real happy because we mentioned his name. 
He isn't appeased with scraps of religious observance or, or prayers or ceremonies. He's looking for what? Micah 6.8. A commitment to justice and loving kindness and humility before him. That's what he's looking for. Every day. The wicked not only have no humility, they can't even understand it. To be humble before God, what is that? I'm the master of my fate. I choose what commandments I want to keep. That's how people think. In verses uh, 5 and 6, after describing the judgment, Micah returns to the conditions in Israel in his day and how relationships had deteriorated along with everything else. Trust was missing. Verse 5, he says, Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Don't tell your wife what's going on. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. If those words sound familiar, it's because Christ quoted them in the New Testament. Micah says you can't trust neighbors or friends or even your spouse. And you know, that attitude characterizes more relationships in our day than you probably would care to think untrustworthiness, suspicion. And then in verse 6, there, rebellion. Now, verse 6 is a ho-hum verse to us in modern America. By a ho-hum, I mean as people go, well, yeah, of course, kids rebel against their parents. Do you know that's actually not supposed to happen? It's a sin to do that? Did you know that? I know, I know the world says, that's just what young people do. They rise up against their parents. No, they, no they're not supposed to do that. Thank you, one. <laughs> Amen. That's just what young people do. You know, not in Middle Eastern countries they don't, even today. Disrespecting your parents is unthinkable. I've told you before, but I've had friends from there. They tell tell me that you cannot walk upstairs and stand on the second floor if your father is in a certain room. You can't be over him. That's how much respect they have for their parents. By the way, under the law of Moses, this is God's law, the death penalty was attached to anyone who cursed their parents. That's God's law, not man's. That's how God feels about children being disdainful of parental authority. You know, you go to school, one of the kids is missing, and you say, where's Billy? Well, didn't you hear he was back-talking something awful last night to his folks? You mean, yeah, they took him out and stoned him this morning. (laughs) You don't have to do that very many times to find a delightful level of cooperation Among young people, it just, it it happens. Just one every now and then. (laughs) They get the message. But Micah, he saw a world that was upside down. So extreme that children behaved contemptuously toward parents. Which, I'm telling you, in those cultures, it's shocking that that could go on. As Charles Feinberg put it, the great commentator. He says, sin breaks every bond of nature. Friendship, kinship, and gratitude. And it's true. It's true. These conditions remind me of the New Testament description of the end of the age. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, (laughs) gosh, it just reads like a, a modern, it reads like he's describing modern America to me, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, 
disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such men as these, he says. Sound familiar? Without a gracious breath of the Spirit of God bringing new life to a people, wickedness advances in a wide, sort of a downward spiral. It just keeps going down. Fifty years ago, people could not imagine the level of wickedness approved and accepted by our culture. I mean, they couldn't imagine. It's, it's almost humorous when you look back in the 1960s and the people that said, oh, if we allow a little bit of this freedom and that freedom, you know, it's not going to get any worse. <laughs> it, it's just incomprehensible. That's what they said about pornography. It'll go away. Yeah. Way into your homes. But it happened and the spiral just continues, always downward. So the godly, what do they do? They, they grieve. They grieve. But is that all they do? No. Fortunately not. Verse 7, Micah says, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So he's speaking for himself now, very personally. His confidence is right where it should be. It's in the Lord himself. He knows the God who has called him. And listen, based on what he's just said in verses 5 and 6, he has no human resources left. He's on his own in earthly terms. But he's not sunk because he will wait, watch and wait expectantly for God to do his part. And God will. He will wait for the God of his salvation. He is confident that God hears his prayers. And that is living faith. watching and waiting while trusting. He's not saying, well, I don't see you doing very much to God. He says, I'll watch and I'll wait and I know he hears my prayer. Watching and waiting while trusting. He doesn't turn on God because life is hard. He leans on him all the more because God isn't going to go away or change because you don't like the way things are. <laughs> That's what idiots do. They go a different direction. Oh, well, I don't like the way you're running the universe. I think I'll just find my own. Well, hey, if God is there and he's running the universe, it doesn't, you can say that all you want, but you're still stuck. Somebody said, well, life's just a big game. Well, it, you know, if it is, then the guy that runs the game is still the one to be in touch with. If we're just pawns on a chessboard. Well, you better be right with the guy playing chess, though. Still. I mean, it's just, it's just true. So he doesn't turn on God. He, he trusts him. There's a lesson. Micah is not, he's not, you know, Micah's not some superhuman guy. He's just a man. He's a man like us. He doesn't live on some plane of existence above human feelings and above loneliness and sadness and suffering. He experiences all of it. The only thing is he trusts God in it. He describes it as, as watching and waiting. He's looking for ways in which God will encourage him and sustain him in his struggles and in his difficulty, in his loneliness. He, he looks for answered prayer. It's just a huge mistake to reject prayer or neglect it. And it's a huge mistake to neglect watchfulness. 
Some people pray and don't watch. And you know what? They miss all the answers to prayer because they're not watching. So he's praying and watching. Watchfulness is necessary so you will see how God works in your life. I've shared before a number of years ago and probably many times about a missionary that I support, uh, our family supports in Ethiopia, <coughs> a native Ethiopian. Uh, he was raised a Muslim. He had, uh, his father had four wives. His father was a Muslim cleric. His name is Benyamin Yusuf, and he spent quite a bit of time in jail because he converted to Christianity. And his father, a Muslim cleric on their holy day, which is Friday, every Friday would come to the jail and say, are you ready to reject Christ and become a Muslim again? And he'd say, no, Dad, I can't do that. So he'd sit in jail. Finally, the communists took over Ethiopia, and all the people that were in jail for religious reasons were set free. But then he started preaching the gospel, and the communists put him in jail <laughs> for doing that. And theirs was much uh, a worse situation because they practiced uh, major league deprivation and torture. In fact, he's still not physically a whole person because of the torture that he underwent at that time. But he told me that he prayed and he watched and he waited. And he said he struggled with bitterness because he really was angry with people that tortured him. I mean, you can say you'd love your enemies, but that's when you're actually ripping your body to shreds. That's when you actually, you know, the rubber meets the road on those issues. But he prayed and he watched and he waited. He says, one day a mouse passed through his cell. And somewhere the mouse had found a piece of bread. And the mouse was like running along and he'd stop and nibble on the bread. And he'd run along a little further and nibble on the bread. Running around the cell. And he said, at that moment he knew, if God can care for this mouse, he will care for me. If he can care for a creature in a place like this, that, that small, he will provide for me. And then, not that long after that, one of his torturers came to him and asked him to lead him to Christ. And not being a super saint, but being a regular human being, he says, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want him saved. <laughs> I hated the man. It's not your typical story, you know. He was being very honest. He says, I hated the man. Finally, the man talked him into it. So he led him to the Lord. And... That man worked out a way for him to get free. And he came to the United States, went through school, mission school, and now he's, he's been in Ethiopia for 15, 20 years now, planting churches there. He's one of the dominant Christian leaders in that country. But his reaction to a situation which would make many people crack can be understood only if you understand what faith is. He wasn't a Christian for convenience or what it would give him in this world. He was a Christian for God's sake. He was a Christian for God's interest. He was a Christian for God's glory. And if that meant suffering, he didn't like it, but he would do it. So take your situation. Be, be faithful to all you know and all that God wants from you where you are in your life. Then watch and wait and trust. And he will do right. He will do wonderful things. Maybe not the things you would ask or the things you would expect, but you will know that he is there and he will sustain you, even if it's just a mouse running through your house with a piece of bread. Laura doesn't want that, but um, she wants other examples from this. Micah's last word today then is in verse 8, and it's directed towards his enemies. He says, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. So Micah's words, those that want him to despair and to break down, those waiting for loneliness to break him and sorrow to drive him mad, he says it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. 
And from the rest of the chapter, I think he's really talking about Israel here because God chastises the nation for sins and the enemies of Israel may believe that the country is finished and it's going to be overthrown. It's going to be taken off into captivity. It is doomed to never rise again. Many people thought that throughout history. The, the Babylonians thought that. The, the Romans thought that. Other modern political powers have thought that. They could destroy the Jews and they keep coming back because God has called them for a purpose. And he says in Romans chapter 11, it says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. His calling is not to be changed. And he will preserve and defend. So all the might of the armies of the world can't thwart the plans of God. That's good news for you and me because he is infinitely more powerful than everything. So remember that because if God has called you in Christ, the promise is yours as well. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a light of our life. Everything we could ever really need or want is found in you. We are sustained and grow through your grace. We have understanding by your word and your grace. We have salvation by your gift, not our own doing. Thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for sustaining Micah, because he's such a great example to us, who have so much more than he did. We have each other, and he was alone. But we thank you for being a God who does all things well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.